Well, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to be going to England this morning, ancient England, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of years back in time, to connect to an event which occurred in the last few days in, of all places, Washington, D.C. You know now for the last week or two we've been following the accelerating political progression of U.S. government suddenly, out of the blue, yeah, right, taking the whole UFO phenomenon seriously. Well, tonight, based on research that Georgia Lambert has done, who will be joining us in the third hour, and fascinating new research by Maria Wheatley, who will be joining us momentarily, we're going to knit these two apparently disparate phenomenon together. And we'll see what we come out with, all right? But to start, um, we're going to go do some news. I want to, uh, uh, for all you who are new to the show, and we're constantly adding people and subtracting people and adding more people, um, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our homepage. That's our URL. And tonight's banner at the very top, which is really elegant. I mean, it... You know, visually, these banners are just something, you know, to behold. Um, It says, Ancient Messages Amid the Stones, with Wheatley and Lambert as the guests. So you click on that, that takes you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, right under the big banner that says, To Listen to the Show, you'll see fast links to items. Click on my name, Richard, and that will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. And there, item number one... Again, we're starting with La Palma, and if you've been following the show, you know why. For those of you who are brand new, La Palma is a little island off the northwest coast of Africa, which is erupting. Hasn't done anything in the last 30-plus years, and suddenly, in September, it started doing its thing. Well, tonight, it has reached the level of the largest lava eruption from La Palma, from the volcano, in the last 500 years. The last time this much lava flowed from the vents uh, near the apex of the volcano was in the 1500s at some point. You can do the the math. Again, the reason any of this is important is that there is a low probability that La Palma could give us a stunning shocking, catastrophic surprise, i.e. about half the island, if this eruption uh, increases, or if the gas pressure and magma pressure underground increase, or there is significant seismic activity from moving lava underground, there's a small probability that the island will finish splitting in two, which began back in the eruption in, I believe, 1949. And half of the island could slide into the Atlantic Ocean, which, according to some geophysical models, the first ones published uh, on this scenario were, I think, back in 2001, um, you could have what's called a mega tsunami spreading all across the Atlantic, north into Europe, 
uh, east into the African coast, southwest into the Caribbean and the northern coasts of uh, South America. And needless to say, that would be a very bad hair day for everyone. Now, the good news is, because of that link, if you put this on your phone, you will get alerts um, as to seismic activity and major eruptions, and those alerts should dictate what you do next. If there is a, you know, like a 7 or an 8 earthquake, that half of the island could come loose. If the island swells like a souffle due to underground pressures of the magma moving upwards from the mantle. It could do the same thing, and that would create, potentially, this extraordinary tsunami. So, you should have, if you're on the rim of the North Atlantic Basin, and in the Caribbean, or in uh, any of the low-lying areas around the coast of northern South America, you should have a go-bag packed. And when your phone says, whoops, La Palma's doing something really weird. You should leave Dodge. You should head inland and go as high as you can go. Uh, on the east coast of the United States, we have the Appalachians. They're like 100 plus miles from the coast. Um, remember that scene in uh, Deep Impact where the kids were on the motorbike or the, the motorcycle and they kept climbing and climbing and climbing the foothills of the Appalachians and the wave kept following and following and following. Well, that would happen about nine hours after uh, whatever events happened around La Palma happened. So, again, this is a low, low probability, but it's not zero. And I know there are some news stories out there saying that this concern with La Palma is, you know, another fear porn thing, it's overblown. It's uh, just for clickbait, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, not here. Again, low probability events have a nasty way, if you give them enough time, of happening. And now we've exceeded the 500-year record of the amount of lava, the number of thousands of cubic meters of lava that La Palma has spewed forth. So eventually, with anything physical or geophysical, it's only a matter of time. Item number two. We're going to be talking a lot this morning about this rather astonishing conference that was held on November 10th at the National Cathedral in Washington, the Our Future in Space conference, which had a really interesting roster of luminaries ranging from the current head of NASA, Bill Nelson, to Jeff Bezos, who just launched uh, Bill Shatner, Captain Kirk, into space and brought him safely home. Uh, Dr. Avi Loeb, who's the guy from Harvard who is now setting up a listening post on the roof of the physics lab at Harvard to listen to and monitor UFOs. I mean, come on, Harvard of all places. We are in totally new territory. If not, Rod, thank you. The Twilight Zone itself. Oh, and then there was uh, Dr. Avril Haynes. I, I think she has the doctorate. Maybe not. She is the current DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, which was a, a government post created to kind of coordinate 
16, 17, or 18. They keep adding them, so I lose track. I think it's now 18 separate intelligence agencies gathering information all over the planet for the U.S. government. This all funnels through Ms. Haynes, and she in turn reports to the president and gives him a daily briefing as to what is going on both on and now apparently off the planet that could concern the United States. Well, Ms. Haynes, if you now go down to item number three, item number two is the two-hour YouTube video of the conference. I strongly recommend um, pending some rather remarkable developments that will be occurring here around all of this in the next few weeks. I may be able to announce something significant, I mean really significant, next weekend on Saturday night show. So you're going to want to tune in because I may actually be able to tell you something kind of mind-boggling. And as you know, since I deal with this stuff day by day by day, for me to say it's mind-boggling, well, it's probably mind-boggling. And I guarantee you, when, uh, when we can talk about it, if this all, all the pieces fit, and we're working very hard behind the scenes to make something astonishing and mind-boggling happen, if I can announce it next Saturday night, I guarantee you, you will need to get new socks. You will, it will take your socks off. It will knock your socks off. So get ready for that. Anyway, item number two is the conference which is going to be part of that conversation a week from uh, last night, leading to item number three. I mean, if you haven't noticed, there is this dramatic shift going on regarding the position of the U.S. government vis-a-vis not only just UFOs, but something even more far out. Because remember, UFOs are not equal to extraterrestrial visitations. A UFO is a sighting where the observer does not know what's caused the sighting. It could be a meteor. It could be, and it has been many times, you know, like Venus. People don't know the sky anymore. Or it could be a genuine extraterrestrial or even interdimensional vehicle. Did I say that? Yes, I yes I did. Okay. Well, Avril Haynes at this conference, item number two, In item number three, there is a remarkable story in The Hill, which is kind of like the Capitol Hill newspaper that reports all the good stuff. And when it's in The Hill, you know it's kind of officialese for the positions of the Congress, the executive branch, um, the Supreme Court. If you read it in The Hill, it's been vetted again and again and again. You don't get in The Hill unless God knows how many eyes have seen it and signed off on it. So... In the Hill newspaper for Capitol Hill, the official paper of, in essence, the U.S. government, uh, only one step closer would be the congressional record, uh, it reports on Ms. Haynes' comments regarding um, the current U.S. Navy and U.S. Air Force um, observations vis-a-vis UFOs. In fact, let me quote exactly. Ms. Haynes, on the afternoon of November 10th, I'm sorry, the evening of, said, and I quote, the main issues that Congress and others have have been concerned about is the safety of flight 
and counterintelligence issues. Always, there's also the question of, is there something else regarding the UAP UFO phenomenon that we simply do not understand, which might come extraterrestrially? She said it, extraterrestrially. This is light years beyond any official position of the U.S. government on this phenomenon for the last, you know, 60, 70 years, since since 1947, when the Air Force called press conferences and poo-pooed the entire thing. And, you know, then there was another press conference in the 60s where they termed them uh, uh, swamp gas, etc., etc., etc. All of this is leading to item number four. This is now from Politico, which is an uh, exterior website which follows, you know, the turgid, you know, kind of uh, arcane politics of Washington. And believe me, they're very arcane. And so when you see it in Politico, it's almost as good as seeing it in The Hill. Anyway, in Politico, there is a story regarding Dr. Kirsten Gillibrand, who was leading a bipartisan group of senators to make amendments to the current National Defense Authorization Act, which is how we spend government money every year, you know, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. I think the DOD budget now annually is something like $700 billion and climbing. Anyway, as part of that budget appropriation, that is going to work its way through the Senate now that a version of this has been passed in the House. Ms. Gillibrand has formally proposed with her Republican colleagues that there be established under the Department of Defense an entire office devoted to the analysis, the exploration, the mitigation, the political ramifications of, etc., 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 of UFOs. And it's really interesting what she says um, in the piece. As soon as it comes up here, let me do a couple things here. Okay, if you scroll down to the bottom of the piece, she says, um, the first question I got when I got on the Intelligence Committee, this was from her, her son's, was, Mom, tell us about the aliens. I go, Gillibrand says, I know nothing about it, she recalled. Um, I'm getting the coolest mom jersey for sure this year. Indeed, she's clearly enjoying her role, joking. This, of course, is the one I would disagree with because I don't think it was a joke at all. Joking how Congress oversight may lead to a congressional delegation visiting new destinations or dimensions. I mean, come on, folks, this is a U.S. senator, you know, from a very conservative part of upper New York state who's basically talking about, you know, a scenario right out of Stargate SG-1 where we send ambassadors to some other planet or some other dimension in response to them sending something or someone, did you ever, you would hear or see or read, particularly in Washington, of anything so extraordinarily bizarre 
and right out of the Twilight Zone. Well, at the risk of sounding slightly um, pompous, I think I've been saying for the last several years that I told you so. This is coming. The subjects that used to be confined to this, these hours of the wee mornings before dawn now are encompassing mainstream news 24-7. So fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a very bumpy and extraordinarily interesting flight. And I have no idea where we're going to land. Gosh, ambassadors to another planet out of the mouth of a U.S. senator in the 21st century. Which brings me to ancient, ancient terrestrial history. Because as we laid out last night on last night's show, and if you're not a member of Club 19.5, you better join quickly and listen to last night's show. It's a critical prelude to what is coming. Because someone and I had two of them on last night, actually I had four of them on, have opened hailing frequencies with some of the folks who are dropping in. And this is repeatable experimental engineering and science, Um, and we're going to be discussing uh, more of this in the coming weeks. But until then, one of the key takeaways is we now have established in the numbers Remember, it was this Victorian astronomer, um, Sir Arthur Eddington, who said many, 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 many decades ago, in the early part of the 20th century, gentlemen, he said gentlemen because scientists at that time were mostly men, not women, he said, gentlemen, you do not have a science until you can express it in numbers. Well, last night's show was filled with critical, important, essential numbers, and those numbers take us all the way to ancient megalithic England, among other places, which, of course, is why tonight we have Maria back with us. Maria Wheatley is a second-generation dowser who was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomants. She's a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles. Maria is an accomplished author of many books on sacred sites and dowsing. In 2015, she made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, elongated people that made Stonehenge their spiritual center or capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic, long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to, in Maria's model, reflect their skull shape. During the early Bronze Age, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for their departed, reflecting the shape of their own skulls. Maria tracked down the long elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others to reveal this secret history of Stonehenge. Anyway, there's a whole bunch more on her on her uh, bio there on the other side of Midnight. But without further ado, Maria, welcome back to the other side of Midnight. 
Hi, Richard. Good morning. It's really Good early morning. in the morning over there, right? It is. It's about uh, sort of 20 past five in the morning. <laughs> oh, dawn. My favorite time uh, sometimes. I mean, I always see it from the other side. So what is your reaction to find, as you're going to hear in great detail in about two hours, that there is this extraordinary connection that Georgia Lambert has laid out between this current insane UFO phenomenon developing in the nation's capital here and the ancient moors and highlands and megalithic sites of ancient Britain? Yes, it's... Uh, it's very intriguing and the the ancient sites do play a role uh, you know in the past and the present and I believe in the future as well well that's where we're going to live as Chris Criswell used to say (laughs) spending the rest of our lives so you have some major new developments that you were uh, on the Halloween show you just at the very end laid out something so remarkable that I thought we might start there what was the new news Give us some context, and then if you can, kind of relate to what I'm thinking tonight, which is there's this extraordinary fundamental foundation between the ancient Britons, our ancient terrestrial Neolithic civilizations, and what's going on far, far upstairs. Yes. Well, uh, as you know, Richard, I've been researching Stonehenge for for many years now and uh, looking at some of the older reports that uh, the you see the early antiquarians around about the sort of 1700s, 1800s and 1900s looked into a lot of the barrows and monuments that surround Stonehenge. And they they used to write reports about them, and uh, they got fu- they get filed away uh, in you know in museums and uh, etc. And in looking at some of these reports, I noticed that a long barrow situated quite close to Stonehenge on the northern side of the monument was one of uh, the most intriguing reports I've uh, ever read. And I- I've read most of the, the reports about the long barrows of Stonehenge. For people and who have report- no idea what you're talking about. Why don't do we have so, images in your section of radio with pictures that can show what a barrow looks like, what the various barrows look like? No, but I'll describe one. If you Super. imagine, if you imagine a long barrow uh, which was built uh, with orthodox date in about five and a half thousand years ago, is a long earthen mound. Some of them up to about three hundred and ninety feet long. Uh, on average, about 150 feet long. So imagine like a top of the roof of a house, and that's how the barrows were on the Salisbury Plain. So they'd be inside, basically as long as a small ship. Yep. Some of them were, were very long. About 390 feet is the longest on the Salisbury Plain. Okay. Inside of which you sometimes had megalithic chambers like at West Kennet Long Barrow. So imagine that there's sort of small uh, rooms, as it were, like caves on, on the inside. Sometimes they were megalithic, as in West Kennet Long Barrow. So, the, so these some- long structures are also mounded up. The earth was piled up. Was, was it brought yes. in from someplace else? 
No, uh, they each each side of the mound you have flanking ditches that oh. were quite deep where they used to get the material from. Ah. So uh, either side you'd had a very very deep ditch, and because we're in chalk downland beneath the the, the small amount of soil we have here, it's brilliant white chalk. These monuments would have been brilliant chalk white. Oh my. So they would have looked quite, uh, quite stunning, a bit like how the pyramid, the Great Pyramid of Giza, was finished off in limestone to make it brilliant white. The same was going on here with chalk, and it was smoothed off so it would look very smooth, and it and would have lasted brilliant white for about sort of 20, 30 years. So if they're a couple of hundred feet long, maybe almost 400 for the longest, how wide were they and how high? Some of them were about 11 feet high and they were quite broad. So some of them could have been about 20, 30 feet across and some of them could have been a lot smaller than that, about sort of 15 feet across. So, so they varied in, in size and width, but they were substantial monuments that would have been visually seen for miles around because they were placed a lot of the time on elevated ground. Oh, Okay, so you have these brilliant it, white artificial hills. Yes, uh, and long, very long mounds. Mm. And inside they were honeycombed, you said. Inside you'd have had various chambers. Some of them would have been megalithic in, in stone environs, like around Avebury Henge, which contains the world's largest stone circle. And sometimes on the Salisbury Plain, quite close to Stonehenge, they would have had timber chambers, timber rooms. And they could have been brightly painted with like ochre, reds and yellows as well, the timbers the timbers out the front. So they, they would have looked very very stunning uh, uh, to look at and today we just see them all grassed over because they were what's called decommissioned uh, in 2500 BC they were infilled and um, finished off so you could so you couldn't enter them again so they were all kind of it's called decommissioned do we know why so we we well, my, my theory is uh, because a new culture came in and changed the, the way in which people lived and created monuments. And they were what I call the beaker cult. Well, they're called the beaker culture and they had uh, very round skulls. These were these long uh, mounds were created by the elongated skulled people going back about five and a half thousand years ago they're their monuments and then they got sealed off around 2500 bc is a is an archaeological fact and one that archaeologists have they just say really? they're not sure <laughs> yep they they just say they're not sure why they were decommissioned and that's why i looked into that because anything that's a, a bit of a, a mystery like yourself richard you look into well, it well particularly with this one is huge it's like it's not a trivial little data point you know you got a huge transition obviously somebody did something radically different and they killed off their predecessors they literally buried the predecessor monuments Yes. Yes. I mean, there, there's something big went down in, in prehistory. And, and with these uh, monuments, just before we come up uh, to, to the 
break, uh, the ancients would put the long-skulled people in there in what's called burial deposits in these chambers. So the so the first part of using these long mounds was probably for something spiritual or something quite sacred, and then eventually they got used as long barrows to put in the burial deposits, normally the skull and the femur bones, and sometimes a whole body would go into these uh, monuments in their second phase before they got closed down. So that's that's how we know there was long skull people in there because there's a lot of rec- records about that. Mm. But one particular barrow was uh, didn't contain something uh, as simple as the long skull people, and we're, we'll talk about that after the break. And it does Super. sound something perfect. out of this world. Perfect. That's what I was hoping for. My guest this morning, my first guest, is Marie Wheatley, who was a very out-of-the-box archaeologist, a dowser, has worked with the energies, the hyperdimensional torsion field that surrounds these monuments, that's amplified by them. And now we have burial, burial chambers from two separate cultures, a real demarcation in ancient history and the later culture, the round-headed guys, They literally sealed off and buried and tried to forget the monuments and burial sites of their predecessors, the elongated skull guys. Were they both the same guys, or did the long-headed ones... Well, let's just kind of wait a moment. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and I guarantee you, ultimately, this will connect to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. We shall return. So suddenly they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison's a poison. Now this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. 
the history, really, what we should know is the globe and their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible. And so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping us sick. Most water is about 155. But anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland. And of course our right brain. So what happens is excess deuterium makes us sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, they always have to disclose their BS. That's them admitting it. So you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. We don't resonate, we don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalists, the cabal, is the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. Welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, November 28th, from the Land of Enchantment, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, who is an archaeologist, a dowser, and who has discovered something so astonishing that has been ignored by mainstream archaeology. Gosh, where have we heard that before? Anyway, uh, Maria, please continue, because you're on the precipice, I think, of blowing our minds. Yes, well, we were discussing before the break uh, the mounds surrounding Salisbury Plain, and that they had uh, internal chambers, and that they were investigated by early archaeologists or antiquarians, as they're, they're called. And most of the reports were putting back that they it contained, you know, elongated skulled type of people, and they were describing the type of artifacts that were left behind, which uh, there was few grave goods uh, in, in these uh, type of chambers. But one quite close to Stonehenge was different to any other report that I read, and it described... Um, like I say, to the normal long-skulled burials where you'd place the skull in there or a whole body 
the femur bones and sometimes the spine. That was the burial deposits. And in long barrows, you could have up to 36 or 37, 40 people placed in there. So mm. they were like a communal way of burying uh, people. So they weren't for the individual. They were for large amounts of, of people, generally speaking, uh, especially in the south of England. Okay, let me, let me stop you there. When you say elongated skulls, are we talking like a head wrapping from infant into adulthood, which the uh, South Americans did a lot? Uh, the, they were quite naturally long-skulled, although, and sometimes they were uh, exaggerated through cranial deformation, but, uh, uh, but they were, generally speaking, a natural... Uh, natural shaped skull is what is believed at this moment in time but there's been hardly any research done apart from my own research oh. because again the, the so it's kind of like a taboo subject they don't want to yes. touch it they don't want to because they may suspect no. there's an answer they don't want Quite, quite, quite possibly. I mean, they they are just not being looked at. They're mentioned now. I mean, since my discovery, like you mentioned in in my introduction, I discovered that in 2015, and a few professors now are briefly ah. mention them in their books, but they don't go into their culture. They don't go into their identity. Uh, it's just like you know, skimmed as it were. So would, would would these people, if they were not skulls, if they were you know, flesh and blood and hair and, you know, sitting on the subway or in a taxi, would you would you notice them as different from us, from ordinary humans? Yes, you would. I mean, the, the femur bones were measured. Wow. That's one thing we've got. Now, once you have a femur bone, you can estimate the height of a person. Anthropologists right. do that. The police would do that if they found a, a femur bone. Right. And the femur bones suggest that these people were very short in stature. So the, the women were about four feet eleven. Oh my god. And the men and the men were about five feet tops. A very tall uh, elongated skull people would be about five foot seven. But on average, uh, in, in a barrow in Dorset, for, for example, the men were four feet ten. Good grief. <laughs> Huh, okay. I know. I mean, we 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 think of that people being like ourselves, but they were quite robust uh, in in their build as well, because the bones were quite dense and quite heavy. And I was fortunate last week to go to a museum, and I was talking to one of the curators there, and uh, I've now filmed and photographed a lot of femur bones and measured them myself. Mm. So I've had access to to this. So I'm building up a really big uh, profile of these people. So they 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 would have looked very different uh, to you and I in build. Uh, and in look as well, especially with, with quite long skulls and quite narrow faces as well. So we have a, tend to have a round uh, face, as it were. The, uh, the elongated skulled people had narrow faces and, and like, Would they uh, have kind of resembled uh, Akhenaten? Yes. I mean, again, you know, Nefertiti was uh, not a tall person. They were quite short uh, in, in height. And yes, they would have resembled that quite. Uh, there would have been a mirror uh, image at times uh, of oh, one my, another. My. And, and these people lived in the British Isles up until they didn't 
which was roughly what five thousand years ago. Yes, uh, yes, uh, the, the, that, that's right, that's correct. And, and they had a distinct culture by building these long mounds, which, like I say, in the first phase was probably as an initiation or something very spiritual, and then they were used as burial chambers, then they were sealed off. That's their kind of phases uh, in, in use. Hmm. Okay, so continue with the antiquarian, because obviously you, you found a library that had something really interesting in it. Yes, I mean, th this is the thing. You've, if you read the, the old uh, reports, then you, you every now and again you get a, a nugget and a bit of a gem. And so I was reading through the, the reports, and uh, in one listing all of the, the Barrow contents, a bit like a catalogue, if you see what I mean. It was listing everything that was found. It was describing in one Barrow, like I said, it, uh, by Stonehenge, that it, they didn't have the normal deposits in. There were five, uh, three to five long-skulled people placed in a circle so that their, their uh, arms were outstretched, creating like a little enclosure inside of which was uh, a very strange description of um, a person or uh, uh, someone from out of this world, so, wait, wait. so to so, speak. So the, so the skeletons had been laid down on their backs, right? Now in a sitting position. In a sitting position, but they were sitting in a circle. Yes. And how many were there? You said 13, 14? Uh, th th three, no, three, there were three to, to five, it, it was saying. The, another report varied. One said three and another said five. So it's, it's three or five. I would imagine it would be five to create more of a kind of uh, a, a filled way in of circle. Yeah. In these yeah. yeah. And, and, they had I, their, I and they had their own long barrel all to themselves. Yes. Wow. So they must have yes, been special, special people, rulers, exactly. priests, nobles, yeah. oligarchs, <laughs> the upper 1% <laughs> of long skull people, culture, whatever you want to call them. But they were the, the creme de la creme. They were the creme de la creme, and they were probably the, the, the rulers, the high queens, high kings, uh, high priestesses, high priests. Hmm. So you are looking at a kind of elitist right uh, next culture. To, right next to Stonehenge. Isn't, right by uh, isn't Stonehenge. Isn't that special? Uh, oh, indeed. I mean, that would have been, you know, your your prime uh, location. Uh, you would have been linked to to that monument. So we've got these five long-skulled people in a circle, inside of which was one person that, that was the focus of this burial. Uh, so that's unprecedented. You don't have people in the sitting position. You don't have people in circles. You just have the skull and the long bones placed into uh, the mounds. And the description of the uh, central person was, yes, they had uh, a, a long skull. And, uh, but it was very, very different. It was described as the eyes were on top of the head. The eyes were very high placed what? up almost to the forehead. Yes, that's the, the the description given, which is a bit like Lloyd Pye's Star Child, where the, yeah, the eyes I was are, just thinking that. 
Yeah, they're, they're much further up. So that was the kind of uh, first report. And it was said that the skull seemed lighter than all of the rest. So I had, a, I had a guest this. on a, a few days ago. In fact, I had him on again last night. His name is Michael Hall. And he's been in contact with you know folks out there. And he has this wonderful phrase that I'm going to keep using because it's so elegant. He says he's in contact with folks who are not from here. And it sounds to me like this special guy, was it a guy? Gender wasn't discussed. Ah, in this ancient, what, 17th century report you said? Uh, yes, it was about the uh, 19, uh, 1800, sorry. Oh, so, so okay, so it's 19th century, okay. Yes. Okay, so it sounds to me like maybe this guy was not from here. Yes, I mean the just physiologically. So it was, I mean it is it is it is strange. The, the so the bones uh, seemed uh, different. The eye placement uh, was was very different. The the weight of the bones were different, and uh, they when they were describing the actual uh, skeleton, uh, they said it had a tail, quite a long oh, well, a tail what? as well. A tail. Well, oh, my, 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 my. This gets curiouser and curiouser, Alice. Yes, I mean, it, it really does. So now we've got uh, a kind of being that is being described. It's So uh, was it's this guy, I'm sorry to interrupt again, was this guy in the no, center of the circle and the other folks were grouped yes. around him? So, yes. So like he was some, some kind sense. of really high, you know, king, you know, pope. Someone of majesty that the others were in attendance to, but he was not like them. Exactly. Wow. Uh, exactly. So this person was being revered. I mean, it was encircled. So mm. that's saying mm. that that is, you know, very uh, important. And the the antiquarians were describing this very unusual tale. So they were really stunned by this uh, find. And I got in touch. Why don't you refresh features. people? who probably, you know, Lloyd is no longer with us, unfortunately. No. Describe the star child, what he found, and the lengths he went to get it analyzed in terms of DNA. Oh, yes. I mean, he, he had an unprecedented find uh, from uh, South America. Uh, it was I a thought, very unusual I thought he found it in Mexico skull. somewhere. Uh, Mexico, yes, that's that's right. Mexico. Uh, that's that's uh, the correct, and it was a very and again about it again like its weight and just you know things like that, but made it un unprecedented. But it was and a small. It was, it was it was like a child or an small. infant, right? As I remember. Yeah. Yeah, and again, this is reflecting what's going on in the uh, Stonehenge environs. This person was uh, small. I mean, we already know the elongated skull people were, were small in stature through the femur bones. And this part, this being or this uh, person was also very, very small in, in stature as well, with the, the with the same kind of density of bone as the description is given. Mm. And what Lloyd Pye went out of his way was to try and get some D DNA evidence, which is always uh, required 
heard by the scientific community and thought it was a hybrid being between uh, a human and uh, an extraterrestrial was what he surmised uh, as part of his investigation into this uh, unusual being. Hmm. Which, of course, unless it was artificially created in the lab by the fusing of the two, you know, genomes, there had to be fertility compatibility to get a hybrid, which means that the the being that was mated had to have been somehow related closely enough to humans to be able to produce offspring. Even if they yes. even if they look different. Back to my ETs are really family model, most of them. Yes, I mean, that's, that's a very interesting point, and it would have been, you know, a necessity and a, a requirement, and I think this is what was going on at uh, Stone Stonehenge, mm. that we, we have, you know, these elong with uh, this uh, other other creature or other, other being. I mean, I, I looked into what could cause a tail, and I got in touch <laughs> with Dr. Ted Robinson, who worked with Lloyd Pye and was, was very, very helpful, because certain conditions, like spina bifida, for example, uh, for a human being to have that, can cause a tail. But Ted Robinson looked at uh, the report and said that he found that would be high highly unlikely that that was uh, the case. And he went into medical detail uh, regarding that. So uh, if indeed Ted Robinson is correct, we can rule out spina bifida, although there were cases of spina bifida in the Avebury environs at West Kent. Long Barrow, but none of the people that had spina bifida at the West Kennet Long Barrow had tails. So we can say, yes, that was prevalent sometimes in the ancient culture, but it didn't produce anything like this description uh, close to Stonehenge. Okay, if this ancient document, ancient being 19th century, was thorough and scientific, did it describe other things found with these five or six beings, you know, garments, uh, keepsakes, artifacts, anything that would give us clues as to who these folks were and what they were doing? No artifacts were reported or found uh, in that barrow. Uh, in the kind of Neolithic time of the long-skulled people, they very rarely left any grave goods or any artifacts mm. in their barrows. Occasionally, you'd get a shard of pottery or some uh, tokens, uh, like a pot. Black pots were sometimes uh, found within the long barrows, but not like in the Bronze Age where you had a lot of finds and artifacts placed in with them. So it was it was a very different way of, of burial. So they must and have really felt that you can't take it with you. Well, maybe that, that could be uh, indeed the case. But what we do know is that there were very, very few artifacts found in the, in the long barrows reported uh, by any archaeological excavation. Darn. Because they could give it, us it all is, kinds of clues. Shame. 
you know it would yes uh, yes they could the only clues that they left behind is the longbows are associated with some of the massive ancient sites like stonehenge the other thing that uh, is prevalent about the longbows is they're always on very powerful uh, earth energies uh, such as earth currents uh, and ley lines especially they they seem to be placed on on those so one thing that i noticed about this ancient culture of the elongated skulled people is they must have been the ones that laid down the lay system initially because it was added to after that by that i mean if you imagine that these long mounds and the monuments that they created were all put onto these straight lines and 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 grid systems if if you will the later cultures that built other monuments and even the christians afterwards and uh, other cultures placed their monuments on those lines so they mm. they have a historical line from like the neolithic the bronze age christian churches uh templar sites etc etc are on these lines so it must have been that ancient culture that laid down the lay system to begin with so you're dead <clears throat> and a lot of your community is dead over time and your culture has built a long barrow which is aligned lengthwise along a ley line, which is a energy line in the earth that can be detected by sensitive humans and now with technology. And they put all these people in this kind of short memorialization of the ley line. For what purpose? Do we have any clues as to what they thought they were facilitating? One thing that we do know about about the lays uh, is that uh, when when you look at look at them, the energy travels quite fast along a straight line. I mean, that's always been perceived uh, in in the ancient world, even going back to the ancient Chinese Feng Shui masters. Energy travels very fast along a straight line. It's the line of least resistance. But why would you care if you are dead? Way. If, if your shell, if your body, if your vehicle, your vessel is sitting in a circle on a ley line, why should you give a damn because you're not there anymore? Well, because in the first phase of the monument's use, it was probably not used as a burial. These of the, of the long barrel monuments were used differently oh. to the end phase of a burial, and then they were sealed off. Uh, it's it's like a stone circle have phase one, phase two, phase three, and phase four to it. They're, they're, they have different phases and different time spans around them. They're not just one thing. Okay. So I think initially the people that built them would have used them i mean tests have been done by by authors and researchers looking into the acoustic properties of, of long mounds as well they have oh really properties. i was just thinking of yes. their connection in terms of what i figured out about gobekli tepe i think those chambers with those tuning forks were incredibly resonant chambers designed to amplify the physics with sound so if you like quasi-churches or uh, halls or places where you could develop a resonance with a higher dimensional physics and that would impinge and change and enhance your living consciousness, maybe. Yes, I mean, that's, that's phase one. I mean, 
the the evidence is is there ah. and one intriguing example of acoustic properties of long barrows if we go to scotland and we go to two barrows called campster long and campster round which are about 100 meters uh, apart from one another so if we imagine you've got two monuments and one is about 100 meters from the other if you played any sound in the in the long barrow at campster you know like drumming or chant in the other barrow that's like it would 300 sound feet like the sound yeah th- yeah about sort of 300 uh, feet away that's right the sound would come out of the floor of the other barrow oh my gosh so they could and they could develop a, a, a resonance between them like like a couplet yes Yes, and that was discovered by um, Dr. Keaton from Reading University. They they did uh, quite a few tests into that, and Aaron Watson from uh, Reading University as well. So it's it's very widely documented that these these monuments were in in resonance to them, and we get that on the Salisbury Plain at Stonehenge. You get some monuments within three or four hundred feet of the other. You get that at the West. Kennet Longbarrow in Avebury. The West Kennet Longbarrow has its partner called the East Kennet Longbarrow, which is in visual distance and probably a little bit further away than 300 feet, but they do tend to come in pairs. There, you won't get one monument by itself. It'll be either environment. Ah, they were supposed to be resonant couples. God, it would be great to measure yes, the, I... the, 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 with the Acatron the, the the physics, you know, the torsion field changes. If you resonate one and you put the instruments in the other one, I'll bet it would go nuts. I think it would go very, very off the scale. Wow. With, uh, with, with these uh, monuments. So when we think of uh, the, the Longmans, we need to kind of think of all these different usages, all of these different ways in which the ancient people could have uh, made their consciousness expand, have more spiritual awareness, uh, and be communicating maybe with the earth, maybe with the stars on very different levels through or, sound, sound Or, acoustics, Maria, and we're, com- we're, 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 ac- we're actually coming up to the top of the uh, hour here, or maybe they were communicating with folks who were no longer here. My guest this morning is Maria Wheatley, archaeologist, pioneer, dowser. I mean, what do dowsers do? They douse the physics. They douse the torsion field. Imagine now that the field, like everything else in life and in experience and in geology and astrophysics and meteor, it's all constantly, what if there are periods, epochs, over many, many decades or even centuries or thousands of years where the physics goes up and down. And sometimes you don't need an amplifier to get in touch with the beyond and at other times you do so what do you do you build a resonant amplifying chamber made of limestone a resonant hyperdimensional material that's why the pyramids are made of limestone and you resonate it so when you put yourself inside you expand your field with it and your connection 
to someone or someplace else. Wow. You're on the other side of midnight. We will get to the National Cathedral. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.